When the credits start rolling, but the movie keeps haunting you. Before, after. Then it's time to tune in to Dismembering Horror. We'll talk about what worked and also what didn't. We'll dissect every aspect. Maybe someone we shouldn't. He turned out to be a completely unreliable asshole. Take it away, boys. Hello, Tim. Hello, Ryan. And hello, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. Not just to Dismembering Horror, but episode 185 of Dismembering Horror, where we are here today to give you our patented dismemberment on from 1980, The Changeling. Did you know that this film is not the film from 2008 directed by Clint Eastwood starring Angelina Jolie? I should hope by now I do. Because I also did. But when I told Britt that I was watching The Changeling, she's like, why? (laughs) (laughs) It's just been long enough. And then I told her it was this one, and she was like, I'm going to go in the other room. (laughs) I was like, okay, whatever. Funny. Yeah. Well, we'll find out if you think she missed out or not here. We will. You're right. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know if we got any uh, news or, or catch up to do. Actually, that reminds me. I did have some some catch up I wanted to do here. I had some reader mail for us. Ooh. So How um, exciting. One of our longtime listeners, Jesse here, sent us in uh, his thoughts on a lot of our, you know, is catching up on our episodes mm-hmm. and, you know, gave his, his ratings and whatnot, gave stream to Texas Chainsaw Massacre Fair. remake, stream to Scream 2022, oh, interesting. a rent to X, but the one, and, you know, gave us his full thoughts on all those. But, uh, the one I wanted to share here was from a film that I thought, uh, benefited from just further analysis the most, meaning crimes of the future. Oh, sure. Which... Yeah. We were, even after that big, long discussion, it felt like we were still left with, what is that? What do we make of that? Even <laughs> yeah. First, a thing that both didn't, did and did not work for him. Movie felt like he put scanners, Videodrome, Naked Lunch, Crash, and Existence into a blender. And this was the pulpy mush it all turned into. Maybe it would be appropriate to say that he stitched pieces of those movies together into a Frankenstein's monster of a film that in many ways has was a pastiche of his prior work. As a huge Seaberg fan, I loved this, but I also would have liked something more different, more its own thing. But in this, in this, in many ways, felt like his version of Scorsese's The Irishman, an hmm. elderly maestro revisiting the themes, tropes, and styles of his earlier work. Next, something interesting about the politics that I'm still trying to work out. Performance art is generally very progressive and often transgressive and subversive. And it seems like the art world that Tensor and Caprice move in embraces all those things. However, the underlying motivation of their work is inherently conservative, rejecting change, trying to keep the body the way it was, resisting evolution. So a weird juxtaposition, inconsistency there that I'm not sure was thought through very much, but that very murkiness of intention makes it all the more interesting and fits the overall tone, mood, style of the film. Which, uh, last point... 
I don't disagree with Alex when he says he loves movies that can simultaneously tell a compelling story while posing deep philosophical questions and sustaining a dreamlike mood, but I'm not entirely sure that would have made this a better movie. This movie asks the audience to rethink our assumptions about art, sex, and our own bodies. It's unnerving and difficult to try and wrap our minds around the worldview of these characters, so I wonder if another thing we're also being asked to reconsider is narrative. What is story? How should it be told? Where is its essential element? So for a movie that's this disorienting, maybe a more straightforward story would have undercut what it's trying to say. Then again, I'm with Alex and I didn't love this movie and the ambiguous haphazard meandering approach to story maybe why. I mean, Easter Promises is definitely my favorite movie of Mm -hmm. his and it might also be his most straightforward. Then he just goes on about uh, how the things are vaginas. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know don't disagree yeah always interesting when um uh art when art form is in its form doing the thing that it's about yet that very form that very form may be alienating to viewers or the enjoyment itself very interesting yeah isn't that all art let's see so (laughs) grown-ups too how would you apply it to that like I've seen that movie. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a lot like Grown Ups One, if that helps. I have a. I haven't seen that movie either. I, I have a feeling that it's alienating in its own right to me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> its form is alienating to you. <laughs> Give it a chance. All right. Well, hey. Okay. Thank you, Jesse, for all that as always. But for one eighty-five here, we got to move on because we got always a lot to discuss. Today we're doing the Changeling, as we said. So let's just watch that trailer. Get right into it now. All right. Let's do it. Here we go. The Changeling. Within this old house live two residents. One of them is John Russell, composer, professor. The other has been dead for over 70 years. Claire, I'd like to talk to you about the house. Did you die in this house? How did you die? Whatever it is, is trying desperately to communicate. What is it in that house, Claire? What is it doing? Why is it trying to reach me? It's a hand. Well, Tim, if you could be so kind, could you just get us all on the same page here, whether we watched the film or not, whether we did the homework or not, and tell us what was the changeling? What happened in it? Okay, so you've got George C. Scott. He's a he's playing a guy named um, John Russell. Very plain. Um, thing of note, um, the writer, his first name is Russell, of the film. Anyway. Okay, so you got John Russell, right? He's a he's a composer uh, out of New York, and tragically loses his daughter and wife in a kind of a freak uh, car accident, where a like a dump truck basically runs them over on the side of the road in the mount the snowy mountains of 
somewhere. Um, so that's bad for him and for them. And <laughs> yes, because they're dead now. <laughs> and so he moves, I think, in in an attempt to sort of move on with his life. He moves across the country to Seattle, like four months later or something like that. Gets a new job teaching uh, at a university there and um, is, I guess, sort of leased or or like provided with a, an estate to live in or agrees to, to lease this estate that hasn't been lived in in some many number of years, 50 years or something like that. Uh, and it's big. It's like a, it's a giant mansion in the Seattle sort of countryside i don't know is that a thing the forest yeah the woods yeah so uh he moves in and um he befriends the the historic society like woman who who showed him the house initially um and he's grieving but he's kind of you know he seems like he's muddling through and and trying to make a new start with his composing is what he does exactly and so he has is is working on a starts working on a piece. He's inspired in the house, and weird things start happening in the house, like bangs in the middle of the morning, and uh, doors opening and closing, and little things like that. Nice, nice, fun haunted house stuff. Um, and God, what happens first is he he has the vision or the dream of the boy getting drowned before the seance i believe and that's what makes him decide to have a seance well he actually does like walk in and see or was that it's a dream well it's a it's a hallucination I, i i'm like yes he is physically there in the attic yeah 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 because he's following noises and he sees it he sees he sees the the act of this man drowning his um his young oh i don't know 10 year old son or something like that in a bathtub which is pretty dark uh but like his vision is like a time warp he's gone back in in time for this event to have taken place and that takes him on this sort of you know journey of discovery of like what the hell's going on? Is this house haunted? Who died here? Why? He has a seance. They get like EVPs in the seance. And it's this kid, Joseph, who is the son of the local rich guy family, like the the family that's owned stuff in Seattle forever. Prominent. And whose uh, current senator is the son of the former guy who lived in that house mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like 80 right so th- this is the 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 that kid presumably grew up in the house in the turn of the century like 1900 190 whatever and he finds out that there was a there was this <laughs> this is how do i describe this it's a little convoluted so the son as a young boy is disabled and the dad, the rich dad, prominent, you know, guy, I guess is embarrassed by that and also an asshole. And so because 
the dad's wife. No. Yes. The dad, this is so convoluted. Okay, here we go. Ready? The dad's wife's father is super rich as well. And the wife dies. And the will says that when the when her because she's next of kin to the super rich guy when her dad dies since she's now gone her son will inherit everything not the dad of of the kid and he's mad about that and so he comes up with this plan to kill his disabled son uh oh oh and this is important if his disabled son dies as well, all of the money goes to charity, not to the dad. So he's mad about this because he's a jerk. And so he kills his son and then he go without anybody knowing. And then he tells everybody that he and his son are going to Switzerland to cure his son's ailments, his disability, whatever it is, which is total bullshit. He's because the war breaks out, the First World War, he's giving even more time to pad out this story. So he comes back 18 years later with a son that's not the original son because he killed the original son. And that son is the now senator of Washington. So the dead son, the son that got killed and thrown down a well by his dad is now haunting the mansion that he was killed in. Woo, we got there. <laughs> okay. So John Russell, our composer, ha he has to like figure all this out and then decides that he's going to confront the now senator, who's the replaced son or the changeling, uh, and just let him know that he's not who he thinks he is and his dad was an asshole and killed his actual son. And then the house burns down at the end, and simultaneously the uh, the the disembodied astral body of the senator, because <laughs> yeah. he burns down in the house, actually has the heart attack in real life because he's accepting it all now, right? And then, meanwhile, our our hero George C. Scott John he uh, gets out, or he's rescued by his his like new buddy. He has this. <laughs> Very intense. The house really kind of goes nutso on him in this like fall apart, burn down, blow apart thing that's going on. And he's kind of wrapped up in the middle of it. And so, yeah, before the house caves in on him, his historic society friend um, comes and gets him. All right. Well, great. We get there. We got there at the end. Thank you, Tib. Before we move on to what worked, we got to rate this thing. So what would you tell yourself if you had not seen this film already to avoid stream, rent, or buy The Changeling? Well, in my life, I have rented it. Um, But I, you know, this is, I think, the third time I've watched it. And it doesn't get better. And I think that, for me, is a really big indicator of like would you spend money on it so no would i watch it if it was sort of on tv like you know on a lazy sunday 
Maybe, yeah, probably. So to me, that's a stream. <laughs> or let another 10, 15 years go by and just hope it's better again. God, but we'll yeah, have no this kidding. episode now to point to. No, <laughs> I, I second your rating, tell myself to stream it. Yeah, I'd seen it once or twice before. And I think it was always like, uh, it's long enough ago. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, well, was that good? I don't really remember. So here we are again. Didn't leave much of an impression. And it gets so much praise for this, like, this vibe, eerie, you know, scary thing. And the moment of the ball bouncing down the stairs that that's like, you know, this quintessential horror moment. And I, I never have felt that way. And I didn't, again, feel that way. Haunted house movies, man. They're they're tricky. They're tough. Yeah. What was it? The the British set one that we weren't crazy about either. The Legend of oh, Hell God. House. Maybe that's it. Yeah. <laughs> There's been a few. There was like the Innocence. I like that one a lot. Uh, and then there was the 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 one with the the uninvited. The uninvited. Yeah, that one, which has some cool stuff, but. I really liked both of those, the Innocence especially. I really, really liked. Yeah, that's a buy lots of candelabras. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, we did get some good things in here, though. There's throughout, some good so. stuff. No, no question. Let's uh, let's see what we can, you know, dismember on that. Great. Front. Here we go. What worked? What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? It worked like a charm, Smith. <laughs> what worked? What worked? I mean, the one right off the bat, Tim, where if it's like Tim's, uh, you know, checkbox for a good haunted house movie, you know, it's right up top there is a scene where they go to the library to look at microfilm. (laughs) Microfiche, baby. (laughs) Right. Those things. Wow. When that happened, I was like, all right, we got it. There he is looking at the thing, finding the right year, looking at the headline. Wait, go back. Yeah. I it's so funny to watch them act that out too from like (laughs) you know, where like there's always a shot of the like the flipping microfiche screen. Um, and then there's, of course, always the reverse shot of them looking at it. And mm-hmm. so we see them. But you, I just was so tickled by them, like, trying to play act at, like, actually looking for something on the screen. You know what I mean? It just felt really funny to so me. So that worked for it, you? It did work because I it was humorous. And was I right that you were giddy that they did that scene? <laughs> I mean, it felt very appropriate. Yes. Well, how, all right. How about the other uh, top checkbox things did we get? Where it's almost like for haunted house movies, you want to go through the formula, right? Mm-hmm. So next one being, and this was the standout for me is to get out of the way. The whole movie was that seance yeah, scene. Totally. It's so good where they mix it up a bit where it's not a kind I'd exactly seen a lot before with the... Um, the the writing i forget there's a word for it oh yeah there is a, it's like auto auto something autonomic yeah. writing or but basically like where that. the medium is holding a pen or pencil over a large piece of paper and just constantly scribbling and then the messages are sort of coming through that and yes or no and we're saying whatever words uh the actor's performance who she's you know, playing the medium she was she just brought that intensity. I really got into it and appreciated it, and it just felt real, quote unquote. You Definitely, know? she she's like tear teared up like the whole time, and it felt really intense. And like I was impressed. It's called um, uh, automatic writing or spirit writing. Yeah, 
and it's considered mostly bullshit. But whatever. Yeah, but by who? Well, skeptics. Which, do we have to go on about that word again, Tim? Not really. Skeptics beating their... People who are just determined to... I'm using it in the sense of not how we feel about it. Yeah. But the sense of people who are like, that's all shit. Because if they were actual skeptics, they'd be skeptical about what they think right then, that's too. Right. Yeah, she was really good, and the... I. <laughs> I really like that weird cone thing. Yeah, I was going to say. Like, the, what's that all the about? The cone thing. <laughs> I couldn't even figure it out, but it's tip-tapping around on the table. Yeah, what do the quote-unquote skeptics say about that? What, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and how it all kind of, um, I think it was how the writing culminated, but it was a genuine, like, almost jump scare moment. It wasn't um, not necessarily like how it was shot or anything I was done, but just how the f- glass flew across from the table. Looks. Yeah. Really just unsettling. Where it was in the wide shot and then we cut to a close up, but something about that wide shot yeah. when it happens, we get this like the full depth and perspective of how far it's flown. And it just it just hits you with that kind of um that kind of violence that you want when, you know, in a haunted house movie and things are being hit and thrown around. It just felt, ooh. Here's what I think is so good about th- what they did with that. Um, if you're, Poltergeist does this pretty well too. If you're going to have Poltergeist type activity, I really think it it has to operate in in a way that you the viewer are forced to question how the filmmakers even did it because then you are you have like officially entered into unnatural right like it feels unnatural i'm like that thing flew in a perfectly straight line end over end a maybe 25 feet and i'm like how do you how could that even happen? How do you right. manufacture that? And in the you know sus- willing suspension of disbelief of the movie, it's like, whoa, that is way out there unnatural and really unsettling. Like how in Poltergeist, even though we know it's a bunch of stagehands or whatever setting up all the chairs on yes. the table off screen, it's like how quickly and right. how that You're happens. like, how? <laughs> yeah. How could they have pulled that off? <laughs> Which is, I think that's, in essence, the feeling that you want to have is the just the how. And and that alone gives you that, you know, that evocative feeling, that shock feeling of and, and that is unsettling. It makes you it makes your sort of, you know, your hair go up or whatever. Yeah. I think that is a really quintessential uh, component of, of being successful with with Haunted House or any sort of, I don't know, spirit paranormal whatever type film right well and another one that i thought of for you because i'm i feel like these are all things you've listed before of like (laughs) what do you want from the haunted house movie or whatever is you like the unraveling story and the mystery of it in itself so uh how did that one i assume worked for you that was fun the the story itself worked for me there's an aspect of how they unravel it that doesn't work that i'll get to um but i love i mean it took me forever to explain it right (laughs) but like that's kind of what i like about a, a mystery is that there's all these kind of convolutions of 
of this, this then that have to be uh, unraveled. And, you know, the success of that unraveling is, is, you know, up, up for grabs, depending on the, you know, the, the storytellers, but at least in its core, you know, fundamental aspect, I love that there's this whole thing of, okay, something's happening. The house is haunted. There's a reason. And, and I've said, I look, it's a trope and it's, it's a trope now that I get kind of tired of, but like, this is 1980. So this is, I'm okay with it in this one when it's the conjuring or, or like, um, insidious, it feels derivative of this. And I'm like, yeah, we know. We know that there was a tragedy. We know that they have to go look for the body. They know there's going to be some sort of like, you know, object that is like the thing. <laughs> um, exactly. There's an object that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. Like that's become over tropified. Um, but in this, it doesn't really feel that. It doesn't feel like that to me in this one. In fact, there's. Maybe, you know, Amityville has it too. Um, but there's something about the era of the filmmaking that makes all that feel... It, it feels real, I guess, is sort of what it is. Like, when they go to the house where the, you know, family is lived... The, the house that was built on top of the well... Like, that feels like a real place. That feels like a real house and real people to me. And I think that's the stuff that's really fun and exciting. Um, even the, the, the medium seems more kind of grounded and real. It doesn't seem hokey or tropey. So that, I guess that's another conversation to figure out why modern movies it, it often does. I feel like I, during the seance scene in particular, I was like, the last in, I think it was an insidious movie uh, that I watched. I'm like, I feel like they just redid this exact scene mm -hmm. and they might have, I only watched it the one time, but like it, it, it felt like this scene was the one that people just copied afterwards. It's, I mean, yeah, it's complicated, but I think the, the surface level or sort of easy explanation would be something's derivative when it is, deriving the thing from another film mm -hmm. versus this is all based on quote unquote true events. Sure. Right. So that's a big difference. And then, and then I guess then where the, the line gets blurrier is like, let's say you have a film that's maybe quote unquote inspired by true events. So also has this thing that happens yet the filmmaking itself is treating it as something we've seen before and not treating it as a fresh, right. original, quote-unquote, realistic moment. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that, I mean, that is a really good way of encapsulating that feeling that I get with a lot of modern, in particular, haunted house stories. Well, oh yeah, I wanted to tell you, Tim, I think Insidious 5 was announced. Yeah. <laughs> so great insidious four was uh the last key was i believe our second or third episode oh my god it might you know what it is it's like the seance thing i'm thinking of must be from the latest conjuring movie because it had the 
the Warrens. Yeah, yeah. So that's Conjuring. Yeah. So, but anyway, great. I can't. I can't wait to not go watch it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so as far as uh, this film goes, and that story we're talking about, the mystery afoot. A couple aspects that really worked for me about this one was the kind of. I last mentioned this. I, I had recommended it at some point. The Netflix series Juon Grudge mm-hmm. thing, the Japanese yeah. made one. Uh, were that as well as this, this, the thing that is the, the tragedy that occurred, the murder or whatever, it's dark. It's like as dark mm, as you can mm-hmm. get. Like, and that, I mean, that came through viscerally too, where you have a father murdering his child by drowning him in the upstairs bathtub in the room that he's been relegated to. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and I don't know it's 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 horrible and tragic and that's but that's why it works you know yeah I yeah well yes <laughs> it should be because like you think of it's got to be it would almost be insulting to just I don't know certain tragedies itself when looked at in this lens even just as a metaphor where if you just look at it as a metaphor of uh of how hard and intense the walls are being beaten and Mm -hmm. things are being thrown around like have it be (laughs) horrible (laughs) yeah yeah it is pretty awful i and visceral right like i'm not a big fan of the idea or feeling of drowning since i had a couple experiences as a young kid that were really scary Mm. and so yeah this this i i was thinking like what an interesting way to also depict drowning a a kid or anybody this like holding them by the legs you know thing at first i thought oh well he could just sit up but then i'm like wait no you really can't you're really screwed in that position you're hogtied what can you do like you can't twist you're you know you're confined to the bathtub there's no room for that and the leverage just doesn't work i was like this is really like awful yeah uh, so very effective and so goddamn cruel. Yeah. Right. Like of all the ways that you could, if you were psychotic and needed to kill your kid for some insane reason, uh, this is like right up there with like top cruelty ways. I mean, I guess another way would just be to like, let them wither away into nothing by neglect, but you know, Man, I don't know. It just it's it's quite upsetting. <laughs> Which worked for you, Great. right? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> the other uh another thing that worked about the story for me is I loved bringing in the senator character and his connection there. There's something really fun about having like especially high official members of government having some sort of um connection or buried past to the paranormal or supernatural Mm -hmm. that they'd rather not acknowledge than being confronted to. Like, how fun is that to have, you know, the stuffy, like, old senator be like, oh, I don't know what that guy was all about, getting into his plane, Mm -hmm. to then have that breakdown at the end and um, come full to terms of having to acknowledge this. uh, We'll have an out-of-body experience himself, too. That's his almost, his uh, ultimate undoing i yeah just love that whether well, it's that they're evil and in on it or they're like a uh, victim to it i just love it. it it actually yeah it it doesn't matter right thematically it's it feels good to 
most of us, um, this notion that wealthy and powerful people often gained that power through through something completely not uh, uh, of their own making. Yeah. Like that guy is just some guy that some kid that a super rich, evil, like cruel dude, greedy, cruel dude found for his own self-serving purposes. That you're selling your soul. Right. And that that kid, the changeling kid, the now senator lived this entire life as the beneficiary of this stuff. And that is really, in a nutshell, what inherited wealth is. And we all sit around being like, oh, look at how successful these people who have all this money are. It's like, they're not mostly successful because they did something. They're just coincidentally the kids of people who are rich for certain reasons. Yeah. And often those reasons go way back into the, you know, history of of horrible things being done. So I like that that's this sort of undertone thematic thing that's throughout this. Um the the lead character I'm not sure how who he is as a character connects to that necessarily He's a successful creative pursuing his passion yeah <laughs> yes that's true i think that that is a big part of it is that he is he's cr- yeah making him an artist makes him a creator out of the ether right of of things and people get to uh uh subjectively decide whether or not he that that's has value to the world and so that's, in that sense, yes, I, I think that that definitely works, making him that thing. Um, but I think we, I'd like to explore the other aspects of who he is as a character for to be the specific lead of this story um, later. So, but now that aside, yeah, this whole, the whole premise being swapping out your kid for personal gain is is really dark. Yeah. And throwing just dude. <laughs> Obviously this is before uh uh The Ring, right? Which to me is the the movie you think of when you think of Kid Down a Well. This is like this is the the Kid Down the Well movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like and and I had completely forgotten that that was an aspect of this movie. Yeah, maybe we should give a little context to and coming into this movie, all I really remembered was George C. Scott and the bouncing ball in the house. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pretty much I remembered the wheelchair. Yeah. Uh well, I got I think one thing left on the list of just haunted house movies <laughs> and what do we want out of them that this movie gave us and it's just that that moment or act or deal or whatever you want to call it where you're like find um you got to break open a wall or like find a hidden passage <laughs> or yeah. there's like the chest behind the wall you break into and right. then there's the thing inside that just all that. It was great. Just to have him like, well, what's back here and broke, break open the wall behind yeah. the closet, all that. Definitely. There's, um, I think my favorite shot in the movie is, is right. Is it that it's right after he breaks that lock and it's this, 
you know, it's a it's a slow follow shot of him going up the stairs. And it's just so beautiful and perfectly framed and like really eerie. But it could be a painting. I'm like surprised that it's not the the poster. Yeah. It's so good. And then like I I don't I didn't find myself thinking too much throughout the movie. Oh, that's a really well composed shot. Like that wasn't a, a repeated thought. But that particular shot really, really stood out. Mm. Um and I, you know, shit, like you gotta appreciate the if if that's the shot of the movie, great like I'll take that. Yeah. Like if you get if you can make a movie and have the one shot that that like sticks around that is quintessential and like really like impacts you, I think, you know, you've done something right. Yeah. My other one thing too is kind of related to the the rich guy thing, it is this the fact that there are like moles in the the historic society like <laughs> keeping tabs and hiding files and like like making sure the secret is safe <laughs> which implies that the dude knows yeah right that he knows on some level that that needs to be kept a secret now how much he knows it never really gets explained and like i guess it's just for us to decide because he really beats the drum of like my father was a good man and it's like are you convincing yourself because you also have been telling yourself that lie your whole life which i i'll buy that yeah um but i it it it's right on that edge of like rosemary's baby vibes where it's like there's a whole little like society of people in town that are like propping up the the rich bad guys. Wait, who was that? Because I remember he had so, the police guy. The, the police detective. guy for sure is connected, but I don't think the police guy necessarily knows the history. It's the historic society secretary. Oh, it's this right. older woman. I can't remember her name. Um, that like makes the call. She's right. like, they're looking into you. Okay. <laughs> and his name's John Russell, and you gotta like do something about it, or else they're gonna expose you. Yeah. And so like <laughs> I just think that's that that's that thing of oh, what's a good uh, sort of it's just it's almost espionage-esque, you know what I mean? It's like there's this secret society, this underground. I guess it's like why people latch on to the idea of like a thing like the deep state is because it's intriguing and secretive and clandestine and like they're, you know, they're like dillying under in the shadows back there, like making sure things are all like corrupt and weird. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like um, actually because Michael on on our last episode recommended it, I ended up finishing watching Severance. Oh, really? Did did you watch that? I have not yet. Okay, well, just the idea. Same thing. Same thing applies. Secret society like this, whatever. um, Deep state, uh, parable, whatever government people all that stuff it can apply to this kind of um like bow down to the corporate overlord mm-hmm. yeah. or or even like um you know walking around hollywood boulevard here the scientology church of scientology totally. where it just feels like people are so desperate for some kind of just certitude or whatever we talked yep. about it in our, our cult episodes yep and it's just kind of the thing where it's like there's so much that 
the ideals themselves that a lot of times are involved with them are are good things. But oh, then yeah. it's just when they cross this line into actually under under our world, our common construct of our world is that you have to be on the defense by being on the offense towards other other human beings. Right. And then there's just I'm just trying to just to hone in on what that satisfying thing is. And I think it's just like when you see humans just be willing to do something at any expense because they are just so sure that they're like the good guys or they're on the side of whatever, whatever. Yeah. You, you know, you're the person I had never really heard the word certitude used in like conversation. (laughs) And you're the person who kind of like used it and made me go, Oh my God. Yeah. That's, that's the word. That's the thing. And it's a very, like for me, is very specific thing that I, uh, you know, flinch at when I see it. When people exhibit that, I'm like, Ugh. uh, and like, I've been thinking a lot. I don't know, want to go down too much of a, a tangent here, but I was thinking a lot, and we've talked about this a lot. How there's this sort of cyclical nature to like when really bad, sort of global tragic things happen. There's this, there's this period of time afterwards or maybe leading out of those crazy times of like despair seeking meaning and you see these people you often cult leader-esque or or cult of personality type people rise up at that time but it's always about power and certitude and like convincing people that if they don't buy into this certitude of whatever the thing that's being sold is, they themselves will lose power. But the real scam is that what is being sold underneath all of that, the the reality of of the the the, the consequence of all of that is that they give over all their power to the person telling them this thing, the cult leader who gains the power. So they're, they're, it's so, they're all being swindled. And that like drives me crazy because I would just want to shake them and be like, don't you see? Which kind of is this movie in a way, right? Like John Russell is not, he's not in it for gain at all. He's not trying to black, like the senator keeps saying like, what's, name your price. Like how much do you want? Like, why are you trying to blackmail me? And it's like, he, he, doesn't have that so maybe that's what his character really is about right like he's a purist he's a creator and he's not in it for personal gain or power or any of these things he's just in it for what's right like the truth nothing else no gain from uh sharing the truth he doesn't even say i'm gonna tell the whole world about this he just wants the senator to know that's it he's like i want you to know the truth about where you came from right well, yeah, as far as determining if if you can determine something that happened historically or as an event or whatever, that is a form of certitude that we can have. <laughs> sure. That's I true. mean, you could get really philosophical and argue <laughs> no, but um, you know, more more or less, this murder happened this way. Right. So I think maybe that's then where that satisfaction comes. Same deal where it's like, okay, we can actually have uh, someone who's on a a uh, a realistic 
kind of certainty, I guess, same word, certitude, uh, battling against the guy who's not using it uh, <laughs> correctly or yeah. ideally. So, so in that sense, like thematically and like the undertones or underpinnings, I guess, of this story definitely are working for me. Execution, medium at times, yeah, but not like in the way that, say, maybe The Shining sort of just like front to back. You're like, oh, my God. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, the Uninvited, I was reminded of that one that we watched with this, where another pretty quintessential, it's great when you can have it, if it's like the old house, is the haunted right. house is an old house. <laughs> you want it where he goes into the room, in this case, I guess it was where the kid was being kept, where it's just covered with dust and cobwebs. <laughs> like, it's so satisfying just to have him walk into that room and then pick up the old diary or oh, whatever it is. The music box. I love this idea. Yeah. I love this idea that he was composing a song out of the ether, right? Like, as you do. Like, that's how you, I mean, often you sit, you know, like, I, like, when I write music, a lot of time you, I'm just fiddling around until something feels cool and like you know and you just you follow the pathway of that into and it becomes a thing like that's really fun and cool that that's you can just out of seemingly nothing create a thing and then a thing exists it's really cool the idea that he does that and then finds a music box that is at the exact same tempo in the same key the exact same notes like that's you like I don't know what you do with that if that happens in real life, right? Like, I think you like you can't even comprehend the implication of it. That to the point they just go, "Oh, it's just a coincidence." It was a famous song. A coincidence? Yeah, like, <laughs> like I note for note, coincidentally remembered a song from the past. No way. I guess, I guess if you're a famous composer and that's like all you've ever done, and you know the history of music like front to back okay but dude no way <laughs> right like so i just i think that's such a cool idea because in his mind he just goes he he's on my side right he goes oh yeah y y this can't be a coincidence this has to mean something and that really sets him on the journey right like that i mean really really is the thing that makes him go no i have to figure this out because that's too that's too much yeah, and good distraction for maybe this is part of his motivation. He's just we see he's still. I mean, I mean, with that kind of loss that occurred, I don't think he'd get over it. But he just he could use some kind of uh, adventure, I think, as a distraction. Well, in a way, I guess it's sort of back to what we were just saying. In, in yeah, it, he really is kind of a mirror of what I was describing before. It, in the or maybe not even a mirror. He, he's the same thing. He's a disillusioned person looking for, intensely searching for meaning. And instead of trying to uh, find meaning in, in the loss of his family, because that's there isn't any. It just is a tragic thing. He's trying to keep meaning by keeping the past alive, by that thing of yes. wanting the past to be alive. Yeah, and so in this case, it just happens to be this other... He's been given 
another piece of the past to keep alive. So that that's kind of where I was getting to with the uh, the dusty room, I wanted to yeah. say, which applies to the music box, but then also just applies to the idea of haunted old house at all. And I mean, th- this is the kind of thing that's so obvious, I felt like I just needed that moment to almost just remember it again, which seeing the dusty room did. But all that, it just, I think it's so immediately affecting and visceral because it is that idea of wanting of thinking of an idealized past and how it's just temporary like Mm. anything right so there's just something about a house in particular or a kid's toy or room where you can just feel immediately the sort of tender love and care and joy and attention that was put into this place and how it almost feels, even though it's totally normal, it can't help but feel tragic when something had so much love put into it that is then just a mere uh, dwindling, decrepit shell of its former self. This is a really interesting idea because at its core... Which is, sorry, which is also what motivates ghosts to do the thing they're doing in the first place. Right, right. There, There's a lot wrapped up in this idea because that maybe I, I think we just we just sort of take for granted or we, it, we implicitly understand that when you see, that's why when you see a house that's run down, there's a feeling of like, there's lots of feelings, but often I think you're, you're, creeped out partially because like why is an old run down overgrown like falling apart house why is it creepy or amusement park right or exactly (laughs) or anything in the woods or like anything that's decaying is because it speaks to former like glory or former beauty that is now gone and like probably can't be gotten back and I think for all of us, it's really that's just holding up a mirror of like morale or mortality to us where we go, oh, man, these things can be lost like and r- sort of reconsumed by time and nature or whatever. And we're part of that. The- and I love I love that that's this sort of foundational aspect of horror because it's used all the time. Yeah, the uh, the sort of maybe positive spiritual spin on it of like, you know, as long as someone's alive or remembered, you know, they're just as alive or it's just as whatever as whatever. Uh, I think that's um, that's why the ending of Titanic is so good and so mm-hmm. affecting. Mm-hmm. You remember that it's like she remembers seeing and it's why also just as it's the kind of thing you can do in film where it's like, we think of Titanic, we set up with the old shots that we've all seen of this old decrepit thing. Then just to see it in its glory days and everything is clean and new. Yeah. It's just this, this like joyous rush that you get from watching it. And then the ending so good. Cause it's like, then it's just, even after it's destroyed, they're still all there in some form that is there. There's an aliveness that, that in some sense won't ever go away. This is very poignant for me because um, my dad's parents both passed away in the last five or so years. And circumstantially, we we never were able to have any sort of memorial. And so last week, 10 days ago, whatever, um, I went 
back to Milwaukee and we finally had a memorial and had them interred together. They had these little carved boxes for their ashes and they were put into a basically like a mausoleum type thing. But my grandmother, Ellen, who had, I guess, requested essentially that this passage from a book that she liked be read at the, you know, at this time. And so my dad got up and he's got, you know, brothers and sisters who are there. And uh, he was asked to read this passage. And and part of the past, I had been thinking about since my, the so all four of my grandparents died in the last six years. And so I was quite old to have all four of them alive, right? Like I think the my, Bob died when I was 37, mm. right? So I all four of them were alive up until 37. Um, so super lucky. They all lived into their 90s, for God's sake, which is crazy, right? So when he died, I don't, I think that the when he died, I didn't really know how to process it, right? Like it was the first sort of family member that was that I that I was close with to to pass away, and then it was like every year slash year and a half an, another person died from my family, which was really intense. And through that, there came this point, especially when when my mom's dad died, Chuck, I started feeling this this emotion of like, I don't feel like they're gone, right? Like I understand that they are physically no longer around. Like I can't call them. But then I kept thinking, but I kind of can, right? Like I can in my imagination because I was close enough to them have a conversation, right? Like I know what they'll say if I were to call them and ask them a question. I've done it so many times. So I, I was really comfort, comforted by this idea that they're not, they're not gone in a certain way of looking at it because I can, I can bridge that gap internally immediately. And that made it feel much better and okay that they were physically gone. And then my dad reads this passage that Ellen liked, and it's literally saying the same thing. It says that one line that sort of I remember the most is, don't think of me as gone and unavailable. I've just, think of me as having just stepped into the next room. I'm still here. I'm just around the corner. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so crazy to me that she was essentially attached to that exact sentiment that I was having pretty much from the point that she passed until we have this memorial, the thing that I discovered for myself was also something that she had discovered in her lifetime and thought was important enough to share at her memorial. Yeah, I I know what you mean. I feel like I'm talking to my old grandparents all the time. I'm talking to like dead celebrities I like where I just I know their voice so well. Right. It feels like it's funny enough, you know, I similarly went through losing my last grandparent or uh, passed away a while ago, but finally had the memorial. Yeah. And I had a... Um, a moment where it was almost maybe <laughs> like with the, the Titanic thing, those who are still around who do her, like just by being in the room with everyone, it was really crazy. You could feel her presence yeah. more than ever. Now to try to tie it back to what we're talking about though, um, a time stuck in a past and how is that kept alive or not? Right. 
after the memorial, I was kind of talking with um, a few of my dad's old friends who'd like all known him forever. These were like, you know, they're all getting into trouble in their 20s or whatever together, (laughs) teenagers. (laughs) Yeah, high school era, all that. It was really funny. But I could feel... My, that like young version of my dad mm, mm-hmm. you know it's more than just someone who's still with us or not it is like what we talked about with the haunted house thing it's the it's a moment captured in time that all of a sudden you can feel that version of them it was i had not, not felt that before but it's really interesting well so all of this is i think in a way to say that like i think the there's a there's a component to horror and and in particular haunted house movies because they they so often center around this thing like the memory of somebody or the 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 tragedy of of loss but the 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 plight of the main character in this one and, and in lots of haunted house films is is to recognize and keep that memory alive in some way and that's enough often like that's very often how the movie resolves these stories resolve by somebody saying i recognize that you existed and that maybe something really bad happened to you but not not necessarily that just the fact that they recognize their existence and so in a weird way like i mean this is again it's like why I think I like horror so much and why we even talk about this stuff is because like for some reason, I mean, we know the reason horror specifically points us in the direction of looking at our mortality and the meaning of what we do while we're alive and the impact that that has. And so when things good, bad or neutral happen, we're not necessarily gone. We can like, the essence of what we did in life remains and affects whether it be a house or an object or a a landmark or, you know, what nature or whatever it is. And I think getting in touch with that is just such a kind of beautiful thing. So thanks horror. (laughs) Yeah, you did it. (laughs) That's a great uh, sentiment to wrap up this section on. Sounds like we still got some stuff to talk about for what did not work. So let's get out of the way super quick. Thought the old house was cool. Classic halls and staircase. Loved the wheelchair attack at the end. Great. Bada boom. That's what I got. (laughs) Yeah. Agreed. All right. Here we go. What did not work? It's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. sounds like you were saying something on his character or yeah i mean in a way just us talking it out here has lessened my feelings of criticism but you know what i was feeling was like why is this guy a affluent older white dude the the right guy for this story if the adversary is an affluent older white dude why why is is the protagonist this sort of the same and i know he's not the same in in essence and and it's also you know a product of 
who you cast in a, in a movie in 1980. They were just so stoked to get George C. Scott. Ex- I know, I know, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember reading some stuff about them being like, whoa, why, how, why is he agreeing to this? Well, our bud uh, Roger Ebert had some interesting thoughts that uh, I thought were apt and kind of described maybe what I was feeling during mm-hmm. it and why I was just kind of like not totally engaged with the character all times. He said in his review of the film... If it only took craftsmanship to make a haunted house movie, the changeling would be a great one as all the technical requirements beginning with the haunted house itself. The film does have some interesting ideas, but doesn't have the sneaky sense of awful things about to happen. True. But onto the character, Scott makes the hero so rational, normal and self-possessed that we never feel he's in real danger. We go through this movie with too much confidence. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's like the best moment to me in the entire film for his character is when he's weeping in bed. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, yes. Now we get to see how the world has really like taken this strong, assertive dude down. And he's he's not even to the level of strong and assertive where then that becomes the sort of fun, unique thing about him. Like let's say dead and buried where it's all about <laughs> right, right. someone who's so kind of just headstrong that like yeah. he'll do whatever the immediate thing is and kind of get into trouble that way. He's not like that either. Cause he still is cunning enough to, to do yeah. the whole, uh, do the whole go to the library thing or whatever. I well, don't know. We, you, you know, don't you want, to see him unravel yeah and he never really does like he's always still kind of grounded that was a weird moment maybe you kind of viewed it as in he was like a sort of um sort of dreamlike fugue state Mm -hmm. but there's just yeah there's a, a moment it's when he sees the um the the son being killed the vision of it or whatever upstairs and he like he just kind of looks at it and like slowly backs away yeah. towards camera. I'm like, what, what was that reaction just now? Like, what? I, I felt that that was consistent at least. I mean, I guess that's a good thing from a, you know, choice point of view, but he was consistently not reactive to any of this. Like he, I guess Ebert's right. He's too rational about it. He's kind of like, okay, well that's happening right now. Which makes me think about what you said last episode, right? right? I, want to, I want to see characters like that. <laughs> yes, but does it serve the story for it to always be, for them to be that way the whole time? It and, can if it's done knowingly and is yeah. doing something with the theme or whatever. Because like by the time he gets to like the, what do you want? What do you want from me? Whatever he says. Yeah. I'm like, where was this? I don't know reaction prior it, it it is to it's almost look he's a really incredible actor but what he's best at is grounded realism and like yeah rational realism in a way uh in in, in i think the well it'll be my recommendation but the movie that that i love him the most in his character is just such a jerk but he's a jerk because he is grounded in a like nihilistic sort of like hey that's just the world we live in yeah and i love that but it doesn't feel right for this movie it, it for that to be 
consistent. It needs to change. Right. And what is this section but just uh, what we are wanting that we didn't get? But uh, I think I was sitting down again. Maybe I always think this movie is going to be better than it is. You think, oh, George C. Scott, right. uh, uh, Haunted House movie, just sort of sitting down at the beginning of this. I'm just like, oh, it's going to be so much fun to watch this actor unravel and start to freak and all that Um but he just doesn't really. I I actually was thinking about this and I was like, okay, so if I feel like he's not really the right person to be the protagonist of this story, who would be? And I was like, well, uh, uh, just take who we've, we've are, are offered. Um, you could have the woman who, the, what's her name? God damn it. Um, Kathy, I think is her name. Um, she, I'm sorry, Claire, not Kathy. Kathy was his daughter. So Claire, who runs the historic society, can she be the protagonist? Like, is there any way in for that? Doesn't really feel like it. Um, who else is suffering at the hands of this tragedy? The daughter in the house and the mother they're real people going through a real thing and they don't know why. Now, if they were the main characters, if this was actually a haunted house about their house with that's built over a well, I, I think I could get on board. And you can still have George C. Scott's character, right? That you can find a way to tie that the, them together without it being needing him to be sort of. I mean, if like if <laughs> Imagine that this movie starts with the mother and daughter and they're starting to have paranormal things happen and they're freaking out. And, you know, right before they decide enough is enough, we have to move. George C. Scott knocks on their door and is like, hey, I've been trying to figure this thing out. I think it's it's here and I want to dig up your house. I think then you have, like, I would be on board with that story and have the resolution be wrapped up in his arrival taking this this mother and daughter on a journey. Because if he wraps them into the mansion, you know, he take, he take you discover the stuff in their house and they get attached to the meaning of all of this as mm-hmm. well. And they end up with him in the mansion. That I think that's a, possible cool angle to tell this story through and then what you have is two people who are clearly not well off living in a small house that was built by super rich people to cover up a thing as your protagonist and the you know the other side of the coin is the rich guys like the bad guys then are uh diametrically opposed to those characters they they're they're you know, on separate ends of the spectrum. So I, I could get behind that, I guess, is what I'm saying. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Um, I just think it's more to do with his character traits being like muddled. And it's weird because like you want a character to have contradictory traits for them to always be surprising you with what they do next and all that. But just something about it where it's like, you know, like earlier you were just asking, well, what, what kind of, 
yeah does that work to have a character who's what what's the word to use not scientific but um rational yeah the the ultimate the the ones who's a super kind of rational and cold towards us all that is usually in a haunted house movie that's usually one of the characters you have and then it's you have the scientist character right who's approaching the paranormal like ah this is the science of it Mm -hmm. all whatever you know everything is unknown till it's known you know and (laughs) uh but then with those characters, it becomes a fun thing of, well, then what is their breaking point in the end, mm-hmm. almost? Um, and he's, it's like he's not, he's not never pushed quite that far to be that person. And then he has these other contradictory traits of just, yeah, I don't know. It's just all just kind of weird and kind of just adds up to where it's kind of bleh, at least was my experience watching it. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, let's say you keep him as the protagonist and whatever, that's fine, but at a certain point, if the if his character is predicated, like where his headspace is, is predicated on the tragic loss of his wife and daughter, and daughter in particular, we never really, like his character never comes around to have to face that. It's, imp- it's sort of vaguely underneath because he's trying to, find justice for uh, another young child who died but like the only connection to his daughter in that sense is the lie that the dad told the newspapers or something like that that Mm. the kid was run over by a coal cart or i don't know that's not even the it was that was some other kid i don't even it was the first lead that they thought yeah Yeah, exactly. So that's not enough. Like I would I would rather see the I don't know how you do this exactly, but if he's if the if the haunting is capable of showing him the tragic tragedy uh, tragedy of Joseph, the kid who was actually killed, I would almost want that the magic of that to be able to show him his daughter to spur things on. And I mean, it's almost sort of there with the bounce, the ball kind of, but I just never felt like we got that, that thing of him having to face that. And that helps him figure, figure it out. Right. Yeah. His, his past and what he's going through just kind of goes away. Right. Yeah. Um, Boo. Bummer. Boring. <laughs> some uh, some other things didn't quite gel for me. I thought there were some weird pacing things, not in like the so much grander scheme, but kind of almost in a like in an inner scene or slightly scene to scene way where like towards the beginning, I think it's after the first night of pounding. He um, he it's like another spooky scene happens immediately after and it just kind of they kind of just cancel each other out in a weird <laughs> yeah. way or even just like in a pacing at, in the end where it's like you have that final tag where the house is burned down and the the music box starts going again like just the way we come into that end tag and almost how quickly it happens it's like there's no atmosphere or eeriness or mystery it's just kind of like there it is and then it happens i don't know it was weird there's just stuff like that throughout the movie that just all felt like it was just not finessed and maybe that's kind of what ebert was getting at too or an aspect of it of um 
uh, it doesn't have that sneaky sense of awful things about to happen. I could see just kind of weird pacing issues affecting that. This is an editing issue. Editing, I thought yeah. I thought this throughout. They cut to the next scene too quickly a bunch of times. Like something really eerie has just happened and before you can even let it sink in, they're just cutting into the next scene. And often that next scene is already kind of like in process. So like one, I can't remember exactly, but it's like the moment that he sees the kid in the bathtub or something like that. And he kind of steps back and then it's like hard cut to the next day where he's like walking along, talking to somebody on the campus of the college. And you're like, ah, like what? I, I, I think for all of the eerie kind of house shots that do exist in this movie, they could have utilized more space between getting to the next scene when a thing actually is happening. Cause it's just like hard, hard cuts into some other like day. And I'd say I noticed it at least three or four times where I was like jarred by it. And I'm like, oh man, no, like sit on this because that's the creep factor right there. All right. So not just me then. No, no, Uh, definitely not. Other little things I felt like were just missed opportunities or just wasn't as creepy as I would have liked. Something I always say a lot with these, a lot of films almost um, where it's a, the soundtrack kind of is just too much or kills the moment. Mm. Like I love that little sequence where he gets rid of the ball, throwing it off the the, the river <laughs> yeah. or off the bridge or whatever, and um, gets back. And of course, the ball comes bouncing down the stairs. But when it does, the music says, "Boom, ba da 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 da." There it is, the ball coming down the stairs. Oh yeah! And just to think of it, just happens just on its own, just. There it is. That's that's what's eerie for me. I don't know. It's not into that style. There, there's a major aspect of sound design that d- doesn't work for me in this. And I was like, initially, uh, I couldn't figure out why. It, I was like, what is wrong with this? It doesn't feel right. What I believe it to be is they, the sound design drops out the actual room tone and, you know, sound that would be occurring in real time Mm. when there are the scary sounds happening. So for example, the first and second time he hears the pounding in the walls, the only thing that the only soundtrack that's actually happening during that is the effect the sound effect of the pounding mm. there's no room noise and then when it's finished and he's you know he's getting up he's wandering around you would hear him breathing walking like this just the sound of the house also would exist in reality but it doesn't and i think that that's actually a humongous mistake because it makes it just feel like a sound effect it doesn't feel like it's real in the moment it feels like it's a soundtrack like that it's that it's detached from what's happening in the moment uh and i hate that it does that doesn't work for me at all i could describe uh just like that the same way really bugged me the voice of the little boy when it was on the esp thing or what do you call that evp yeah (laughs) 
where it's like, yeah, I don't know. You'd think it, it, how creepy and eerie it'd be. You want to make it again so quote unquote real where it's like he really has to turn up the volume and it's this sort of maybe like I can just barely make it out like, Tim, you know, whatever. It's like yeah. su- super slight. But here it was just like a little boy's vo- bo- boy voice going like hello i'm a little boy <laughs> hello <laughs> it's just this is so much Ugh. yeah not into it yeah i bet you if you man this this is surely true of many many movies but if you redid all of the sound if you remastered this and you had a foley artist come in and like redo a lot of that stuff i think the movie would be way better yeah or it's kind of, you know, when, um, or just in this terms of soundtracks too, like I rewatched a one that we had reviewed cause it was on the Joe Bobathon thing. I watched, um, the stepfather, which I <laughs> sure, I think it's a lot of fun and really enjoyed, but it's just another example where it's like, wow, he's, his crazy, intense, super affecting performance mm. just gets totally undermined. If you're someone like me, who's distracted by it of just this kind of like, I don't know, soundtrack that wasn't too crazy about anyways yeah sound music i mean in a horror film kind of really important yeah not that it's not important in other films but it it really can make or break the the you know the vibe that you're going for yeah and maybe this is to just all these reasons we're mentioning is why it didn't work for me they uh after he's playing the piano towards the beginning and the key doesn't work and he steps away and then we just move in on the piano and the key plays itself loudly. That just for me in that moment felt way too much too soon. Like it could have just been hanging on the key and just left us to go, well, that's weird. Why isn't it working? Mm -hmm. Was someone playing it that much? Or just have it move just the tiniest bit and be like, wait, did that just move? Sure. Just, I don't know. Is this too much too soon? But at the same time, how quickly then we get to just just things pounding like it's almost no big deal maybe it was fine to come then i don't know it just all just felt weird yeah there's an art to the slow burn and this one it feels chopped up i mean you look at the other extreme would be uh the innkeepers <laughs> well sure yeah the, <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> so this one uh was yeah one extreme um, that one's the other um great that's all i had yeah. Um, did I have anything really specific? Um, not really, I guess. I'm trying to th- rack, like, really, let's rack my brain for something. Uh, I, I almost could say it didn't work for me, but there are, in <clears throat> if the sound design was different and the soundtrack or the score was better this would work for me but because it's not the lengthy periods of time in this movie with no dialogue just feel like not a whole lot's happening but i can see how the attempt makes sense to me like you don't need a lot of dialogue in in this story so i'm cool with that but bridging those periods of time with the appropriate sound design didn't didn't work out yeah a lot of just walking around looking at things it's yeah. a little too quiet yeah all right let's move on our next or last big section here things of note 
This should be interesting. Well, one thing I think that's interesting is just how, I don't know if prolific is the right word, but how much this director worked. His name's Peter Medak. Um, you know, and he's got stuff starting in 1968 all the way to 2018. And he did an episode of Masters of Horror, which I'm watching through right now. So I'll keep an eye out for his episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There it is. Interesting. So in, in Peter's defense to, you know, all this that wasn't really working for us, we were touching on. Got to wonder how much it is him or just kind of the circumstances of the project. Totally. Where, uh, yeah, from I believe this is from the Wikipedia or go to here. He was the third director oh, hired no. for the project. His predecessors, Donald Camel and Tony Richardson, both withdrew due to, quote, creative differences. Then Medak was hired with only a month to facilitate script rewrites and set construction. Oh, my God. Wait, creative differences between who? I'm assuming each of those previous two directors and... Producers? Producers or studio, Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine it would be between them and George C. Scott. Or the the screenwriter. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, that's possible. Sure. So Wait, who was the screenwriter again? Oh, yeah. William Gray and Diana Maddox. And so Russell Hunter, now he's the dude who has the account that this film was based on. Mm. And so pretty close to actually what he says happened. So apparently a lot of his story... There's like no way to confirm, oh, this this person actually did live at this house, da, 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 okay. da, da, whatever, whatever. <laughs> but what he says happened, and this is a big one in this, uh, the lore of this the paranormal world. So he moved to Colorado, helped his parents out, run a, run a lodge, and no one else wanted this mansion, which apparently might have had something to do with. It was built on top of a cemetery where the bodies were haphazardly moved. Okay. And I'm sort of taking the summary from the website mysteriousuniverse.org from a 2019 post. So just like in the movie, um, intense banging would happen at 6 a.m. every morning. Paintings would fall off, move, that kind of thing, getting really intense. Uh, he found a hidden staircase mm. leading up to the attic where he found a journal of a boy who was trapped there. And it was just more or less this, the same story of the he's killed, false adoption, or he falls, you know, the, the kid to replace that kid, all that stuff. That's where the bulk came from rather than um, the music box. It was a toy ball okay. um, that he found of the kids. And uh, same deal where he then through a uh, through medium or whatever tracked out like the actual grave site or uh, uh, the the burial site, you know, the hidden wow. burial of this kid, and um, thought that that would have helped things get put to rest. But things only got more intense in. So that's when Russell Hunter called in a church to give it a little to give it their once over. That apparently helped. But then not entirely. So he just, you know, finally decided to move out and the house was destroyed. But apparently when it was getting demolished, the bulldozer operator was crushed when he was destroying what was the main bedroom. The walls flung out in such a way where they flew outward and killed him. Mm -hmm. Spooky. Yeah. You have anything else? 
Uh, no, not really. Uh, the only thing I forgot to mention, I guess, in what worked is the gold medallion being drawn out of the dirt mm. in the well. I just really liked how that looked. Oh, yeah. That was neat. It was cool. Um, but no, I don't really have anything of note. Great. Then we can wind down as we like to do with some recommendations. I'll recommend Dead quick here. Uh, I was interested, the filmmaker Juzo Itami, who made that film Tampopo, that's really great. Mm -hmm. I always am recommending that to people. It's like, what else has he got going on? And they had a full collection of his films from uh, Criterion Collection or Channel. And I watched The Funeral, one of his early ones, and it was uh, right up there. It was really great. I recommend The Funeral. Recommend Dead, excuse me. The Funeral by Juzo Itami. Sounds great. I'm going to recommend Dead, my favorite, and one of my favorite movies, but my favorite George C. Scott movie, which is what I was referencing earlier, uh, The Hustler, which is Paul Newman and Piper Laurie and Jackie Gleason. And it's like from, I don't know, 58 or something like that. Uh, and it's about a pool pool player, Hustler. And George C. Scott plays sort of the like, manager i guess in a way of these pool sharks one in particular and he's he's so ruthless and like conniving and realistic he his character is like a like a villain in it for sure and he's a i mean he is everybody in that movie is amazing it's amazingly shot and directed but he is by far a standout. Like he's is that was my introduction to him as a actor, and I was like, oh my god! I haven't seen it. I just added it to my oh, list. Oh, it's so good! I have the DVD. I will hand it to you <laughs> in momentarily. I'll recommend to you uh, just as far as George C. Scott films. Have you seen Hardcore? I don't think so. No, it's, it's, I remember it being really great, but it's where he he's like conservative dad whose daughter like runs away to go into porn, and he goes on a hunt to get her back in like the CD area of San Francisco. It's great. Whoa. Yeah. All right. Cool. Hardcore. Cool. All right. Well, that's it for George C. Scott, because that's it for today's episode. That is about it. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> in closing, uh, you know, maybe um, check out the house before you buy thoroughly enough. Get that, uh, <laughs> get that paranormal investigator in there. Thanks for listening. That's right. And we'll see you next time. Good Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>